Hi, I'm Caitlin. And I'm Laura. And welcome to Obscuriana. All right, today we are talking about Ibn al-Haytham. And so this is a Middle Eastern scientist from around about a thousand CE. His full name, I'm going to try to do, there's there's a couple, I've tried to cut out a lot of the the Arabic just because I'm not comfortable with a lot of the pronunciation. So his full name is Abu Ali al-Hassan ibn al-Haytham. Hey, good job. Fortunately, that was, it's fairly straightforward. <laughs> he was around during the, the golden age of the Muslim world, or the Islamic golden age, which was a progressive Islamic period of innovation, uh, if you're not familiar. It's, it's widely been forgotten in a lot of Western history. Don't worry, we'll talk lots more about it. I have literally been resisting not just talking all the time about the golden age of Islam, because that was kind of my focus and my studies for a long period of time. And I'm like, if I hit the podcast with this from the beginning, we'll never get off of it. I was even hesitant to, to do this because I was like, man, should I just let Caitlin handle all of the all of the Islamic stuff? No. And I'm like, well, but no, but this is fascinating. No, no, no. That's the whole point is we get to learn about new things. Yeah, well, you know, and, and we, we each have our specialties, but it doesn't mean that we can't touch on the other's particularities. Yeah. So this kind of hit hit my science heart and, and went, well, we need to know about this guy because I didn't until actually fairly recently. Yes, don't worry. I'll, I'll talk one day about topics having to do with either food or costumings. Right, we'll, we'll get there. Widely unknown today, at least in the West, it, this time period served as a seedbed for new ideas and scholarly endeavors that would be the start of scientific research during the European Renaissance, which, as we know, was about four or 500 years later. And I'm sure most of you know a lot more about the European Renaissance than the Islamic Golden Age. Not a lot is actually known about his life, just because we don't have a whole lot of writings of it outside of, he, he did publish one autobiography, but it was a little bit more, from my understanding, regarding his scientific works and like kind of how he did those, and less like, this happened to me when I was 12. It's not just a recounting of day-to-day life. Right. Really, we we mostly have his published works and a few stories to go off of. So he was born in, in uh, 965 CE in Basra, which is in modern-day Iran, on the coast. It's actually a, a, one of the main trading ports. He was a scholar of many disciplines. He was phenomenal with mathematics, physics, mechanics, astronomy, philosophy, and medicine. And we'll touch on most of those in a little bit. I kind of want to do them all in their own section. So he was a prolific writer. According to his own testimony, he wrote 25 works on mathematical sciences, 44 works on Aristotelian physics and metaphysics, more than that on meteorology and psychology. Um, the, The autobiography I just mentioned indicates clearly that he very thoroughly studied Aristotle's philosophy, logic, and metaphysics, where he gave a, a concise account of that. All told, it's believed that he wrote about 200 different works. Wow. The downside is that we only have about 50 of them in existence. And even that, they're not all complete. A couple of them, we have like the manuscript and there's chunks missing out of them. So unfortunately, we really don't know what else he might have theorized or written on that we don't have or, or don't have translated. A lot of these, I mean, some of these were were really not translated into anything but Arabic until the last 20, 30 years. Oh, wow. Now, some of them were translated as early as 1300. Yeah, as part of the translation movement. Right. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit as well. 
So initially, he was trained for a civil service job and was appointed as a judge for Basra. But due to the presence of different religious movements with diverse and conflicting views at the time, he became disillusioned with religious studies and decided to dedicate his time and effort to science. Hmm. The next thing I want to touch on is there's definitely different reports of how this one came about. So some people say that he wrote to the the uh, Fatimid Caliph of Egypt, uh, Al-Hakim, saying that he could solve the problem of regulating the, the flow of the Nile. Some say that Al-Hakim had read his reports or that his advisors had read Al-Hakim's reports and, and said, hey, you should invite this guy over to fix this. So we don't know exactly how this came about, but he did end up in Cairo at the request of Al-Hakim to try to regulate the flow of the Nile uh, so that it would stop flooding. Al-Hakim, in case you're not aware, was a very eccentric ruler who was known for issuing somewhat arbitrary laws and was kind of brutal. Yeah. He he had his tutors and ministers killed whenever there was a, a law he enacted that killed a bunch of dogs. Just not a, not, not a real great dude from, from the bit that I know. When Al-Hakim realized during his fieldwork along the Nile that the way that he wanted to regulate the water flow was by building a dam south of Aswan. He realized in actually being there and seeing it, that was impractical. Mm. Well, seeing that and realizing that he was going to have to tell Al-Hakim that he couldn't do it, he feared for his life, understandably. Yes. <laughs> yeah, as, as he should have. To avoid the potential deadly wrath and anger uh, of his, we're going to say, temperamental and mentally unstable patron, he did the smart thing and faked insanity. And faking insanity, or, well, not faking insanity, but but if you were insane under Islamic law, you could not be killed. Uh, so instead, he was stripped of his possessions and books and kept under house arrest for 10 years until Al-Hakim died. Oh my god. So, okay. Was that like a gilded cage sort of situation, though? Uh, I mean, he was allowed... He actually did a lot of his research during this time. Ah. Uh, and the the main book that we're about to talk about, the the one that has really been the biggest thing that people reference when they think of Al-Hatham, was actually written during his, his house arrest. So kind of... Uh, so he was stripped of his possessions, but then like he was still allowed to live at home. We really don't know what the what the exact situation was. There's a lot of differing accounts on, on some of this. Uh, so we, we're not sure. We do know that he was under house arrest for about 10 years. And this was somewhat later in his life because Al-Hakim died in 1021 CE. He was assassinated under mysterious circumstances. Oh, okay. He pissed someone else off. Yeah, probably. So after that, he was he was released from house arrest and then kept producing scientific works until his death, still in Cairo, in 1040 CE. And that's about what we've got on a personal level. <laughs> there is a little bit more, but it, but again, there's there's conflicting stories. There's there's a lot of evidence that goes uncorroborated, and so I not knowing what the what the exact situation is. We're, we're focusing today on the science. There's a lot, there's just a lot of stories. And because we don't have a lot of writings and, and a, like a comprehensive biography, it's really hard to say exactly what happened. Which is too bad that so much has been lost. It really is. And and a lot of that too was because he was so focused on, on the, the, and this is me extrapolating, because he was focused on a, a lot of the scientific works, you know, he, he may not have thought to jot down, here's exactly what happened with this situation. It may have been more like, Went to Cairo, couldn't fix the Nile, faked insanity. Yeah. And so people then fill in the details that make sense. Yeah. I mean, I can see that. But because he was kind of like a Renaissance man. Pre-Renaissance Renaissance man? Yeah. I mean, 
the OG renaissance. <laughs> right. Was it just kind of like lost to time naturally or was there a concerted effort to get rid of his works? No, it seems that it was just the natural degradation of, of time and, and those not being the, the works that were deemed important enough to preserve. There may be more Arabic texts that I was not able to find just because I, I don't have that knowledge that have not been translated and, and therefore, you know, we really just don't know. Wow. Well, interesting. Now I'm curious. I kind of want to dig. I kind of want to dig out some stuff and see if I can find anything. There you go. Uh, we we might have to do a part two on that one. Yeah, if I find anything, you will see a part two pop up, or at least like a little mini update. Ooh, maybe for patrons. Oh yeah, I think that would be perfect. There we go. So let's talk about some of his science. And we're going to get a little scientific. I'm going to try not to get too bogged down in details because a lot of this I don't understand either. We start getting into like calculus and I'm like, okay, pass. So Ibn al-Haytham's most important work uh, by far, which I've already mentioned, is his work, which translates as the book of optics. I'm probably going to butcher this and I did not look it up how to pronounce it, but I'm, I'm going to give it my best. Uh, Kitab al-Manazir. Hey, you know what? I'm impressed consistently. <laughs> Someone, someone, if you know better than me, please uh, let us know. I feel like any Arabic-speaking listeners who were listening would know what you were going for. Sure, I hope so. That's the goal, is to be comprehensible. It, it is seven volumes full of experimental and mathematical study of the properties of light. It has some influence from Ptolemy's second century work on optics, but it also contains the first correct model of vision that we have which is the passive reception by the eyes of light rays reflected from objects. Ptolemy and Euclid's theories of vision were that objects are seen by rays of light emanating from the eyes. So this was a complete change from, from the, the Greco-Roman idea. Okay. Yeah. It was something that, like I said, he was working on during his house arrest. Thank God for that house arrest. I know, right? So one thing that he was apparently able to do was he had this dark room and, and I don't know if this was, this was on where he was looking at for the eye or not, but there's a, there's a whole, I'll see if I can find the image. I don't know that I copied it, but like where he was in this dark room and had like a, a pinprick hole in the wall and saw from that the reflected image as the eye would see it, which is upside down on the back wall. So the the light that was coming in was then reflected in the wall. Okay. So, you know, using that, he was like, well, clearly my eyes aren't producing this light. This light is coming from outside because I'm literally seeing things that are not in this room. He also in this work correctly explains refraction where light, whereby light, moves slower in denser mediums. A Latin translation of this work, which unfortunately was sometimes literal and sometimes interpretive, oh, no. uh, was made by, a, by an unknown scholar. We don't know who it was, probably early in the 13th century. So early 1200. So, I mean, only about 200 years after he was writing. And that work had a major influence on not only on, on 13th century thinkers, such as Roger Bacon, whose name you might know, but also on later scientists like Johannes Kepler, specifically for the way he combined observations with rational arguments. But also in this work on optics, he made a thorough examination of the passage of light through various media, media to discover that law of refraction. He carried out the first experiments on the dispersion of light into colors. Oh, okay. He dealt at length with the theory of phenomena like shadows, eclipses, rainbows, 
and speculated on the physical nature of light. He attempted to explain binocular vision and gave a correct explanation of the apparent increase in size of the sun and the moon when near the horizon. And like I was talking about a minute ago, he was, he was known for the earliest use of the pinhole camera, which is that tiny hole through which he was able to see that reverse damage. Interesting. So he did the pinhole cameras too. Yep. We owe him a lot. I'm just thinking like my contacts, my glasses. <laughs> yeah. And spectacles really didn't come in until, until the 13th century. So what does that tell you? I've got a little quote here where he's talking about sight and eyesight. Uh, so sight perceives the light and color existing on the surface of the contemplated object. Vision perceives necessarily all the objects through supposed straight lines that spread themselves between the object and the central point of the site. I can't say I totally get that. Also, I hate to say it, but it's becoming increasingly clear that they really did take all of his books for this house arrest. Right. (laughs) Thank God. But also that poor man, like a whole new level of board. (laughs) I mean, he was already an established scientist, so yeah, they, they can't have taken all of his, his resources. So on the, on the basis of his experimental results, he classified light sources into three types. Luminous, reflecting, and transmitting sources. So transmitting sources would be what we would think of today, like a light bulb or, you know, the sun. Uh, reflecting would be the moon or a mirror or water. Luminous would be more like something that doesn't really it doesn't really emit light but it doesn't reflect it either so something more like uh more like a glowing if i'm breaking this down correctly so it's not like a beam of light it's more like a radiating light yeah he then applied that classification to the moon so uh and then wrote a separate tract on the light of the moon um investigating the nature of moonlight and concluded that the experiment serves to prove that the mode of transmission from the moon is of the same kind as the already known mode of emission from self-luminous objects. So slightly incorrect in that the moon does not have its own light. What we see is the light from the sun reflecting off the moon. Yeah, which was a big... Wait, if you're a flat earther, this may not be the episode for you. We should probably just say that now. Probably. If you're a flat earther, let's be real. None of these episodes are for you. Okay, true. But I hope you've made it this far. You know what? Yeah. I I hope we've given you something to think about. Yeah, I think we're now going to go downhill into a space that you believe is totally science fiction. Yeah, so so the, the moon would be kind of that luminous. The radiating reflection sort of situation. Right. It's not direct reflection. It's It's kind of using it for its own thing more than like a mirror reflects light. He built on the work of Greek physician Galen, who had provided a detailed description of the eye and optic pathways. And today the oldest known drawing of the nervous system is from this book of optics. I've actually, we'll have it in the show notes. And of course I can't read it. It's a little fuzzy. <laughs> also it's in Arabic, but you can, but you can see the parts of the eye and the nose. And like, it, it's, it's pretty clear what he's trying to show you here. Didn't you learn pre-13th century Arabic for this? Absolutely. 100%. Guys, we don't have day jobs. Don't let us fool you. So among the other insights from this work was the understanding of the, the crucial role of visual contrast. For instance, he realized the color of an object depends on the color of the surroundings. 
and that a contrast of brightness levels explains why we can't see the stars during daytime. Okay. It's the same reason why, like, if you're in a, a major city, a lot of times when you look up the sky, you're like, oh, I can't see any stars. You go 20 miles outside of town. Yeah. And you can. Uh, you know, it's that it's that contrast of brightness. Well, it's like, you know, when, when, we, were, when we were kids and, you know, hanging out at, at one or the other's house, which is close enough to town, where you can't see as many stars versus, like, being out at camp or, like, out on a... a school overnight field trip or whatever and like looking up and going i see stars neat yeah it was kind of overwhelming as a kid because both of us were raised in the city most of the time yeah yeah it's awe-inspiring it really is awesome like in the proper definition of awesome it is yes exactly not the overused i am guilty of that oh so guilty completely guilty interestingly enough and and i just put this in in this section because it specifically refers to optics but jeffrey chaucer oh this is left field left field i know <laughs> references even i'll hate them in the squire's tale in canterbury tales are you kidding me not kidding wow i found this like an hour ago and i was like i've got to throw this in here <laughs> <laughs> you're like well now it's gonna get put in there i don't know what led me i was reading a synopsis of like a book that i love that i've read a few times over the years and they're like, yeah, it's um, like in the style of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And I'm like, oh, God, I forgot. I really actually did like that book. So right. now I'm really going to have to go back and reread it. So in the Squire's Tale, it, it reads, they spoke of Alhazen and Vitello and Aristotle who wrote in their lives on strange mirrors and optical instruments. So Alhazen here being the, the Latinized form of Alhaitha. Uh, and that's how it was often referred to in, in various works, really from the 13th century up until about 1800, was Alhazen. Okay. Vitello, the other the other name that might not be familiar, Aristotle, hopefully you're all at least vaguely familiar with. Uh, <laughs> but Vitello uh, is the scholar from the 13th century whose book on optics is substantially based on Ibn Alhaitham's optics. <laughs> So, yeah, just kind of all comes back to to that point, which I thought was really interesting that we have really a not exactly contemporary because this was 300 years later, but an English writer mentioning him. It was it was a known he was a known topic at the time. Well, the translation movement spread further than most people think it did. Very true. Generally, it wasn't that big of a stretch for these really interesting scientific texts to be translated and disseminated. Absolutely. So now we're going to so we're going to we're going to go into astronomy a little bit. So optics was kind of the the biggest scientific breakthrough um whereas he did write on on a lot of other topics. Uh it was knowledge about a lot of, a lot of other topics, but optics was really kind of the focus. So we'll talk about astronomy and mathematics a little bit. He's not known to have discovered any astronomy-related breakthroughs, but his works instilled enough doubt in later scholars on the correct form of the galaxy and still was able to influence many Western scholars in their studies. Just by kind of looking at things from a more critical eye and doing some experiments and, and whatnot. So while he's not counted among the greatest Arab astronomers, his works does show that he had mastered the techniques of Ptolemaic astronomy. Oh, in his free time. Yeah, just in his free time. Yeah, no big deal. No big deal. They reveal his ability to solve the problems that received attention from Arabic astronomers, such as determining the Qibla or the direction of prayer. 
That's why it was so important. You have some of the world's best astronomers coming out of the Middle East around this time and before, simply because of, as Islam spread, they wanted to make sure that people were facing the correct direction. That was extremely important to be facing the correct direction for your prayers. So he critiqued Ptolemaic planetary models and that appears to have inspired research that led to their replacement by non-Ptolemaic arrangements in the 13th century in Moraga and 14th century in Damascus. He was able to break things down enough and question things so that others were able to step in and fill in the pieces and go, these assumptions are incorrect then we can move on and look at it this way. So he break down those assumptions that helped other people launch forward. So much foundational work. Exactly. So astronomers in the European Renaissance were influenced by his work on the configuration of the world, where he continued to accept the physical reality of the geocentric model of the universe, presenting a detailed description of the physical structure of the celestial spheres. I've got a, a quote here from him that says, the earth as a whole is a round sphere whose center is the center of the world. It is stationary in its middle, fixed in it, and not moving in any direction, nor moving with any of the varieties of motion, but always at rest. So the Earth spins on its axis, as anyone who's not a flat earther will understand. Yes. Yeah, it, it is stationary in the middle. That's that's the axis where it turns. And that's phenomenal. And like I said, it was, was served as a great influence for, for those of the European Renaissance to come in and, and expand upon that. As far as mathematics, he did contribute... A lot to mathematics, and I'm just going to touch on a couple things quickly because a lot of them are just beyond the scope of my comprehension. <laughs> so, so I'm like, okay, I understand what these words mean, but I couldn't explain it. <laughs> right. Uh, so Ibn al-Haytham built on the mathematical works of Euclid and Tabit ibn Kura, uh, who was also a mathematician from the Islamic Golden Age, uh, and went on to systemize infinitesimal calculus conic sections and that that one i do understand because that's where the cone like when you cone cut a cone at different angles or the curves that are formed by the intersection of the of the circular cone with the plane surface yeah he did a lot of work on conic sections and how to kind of calculate that he worked with number theory and linked algebra to geometry i think that's the biggest thing that i'm like oh wow yeah, they have, that's pretty big. That's massive. So generations of people who didn't learn common core math. He studied the mechanics of motion of a body and was the first to maintain that a body moves, this might sound familiar, so keep this in mind, that a body moves perpetually unless an external force stops it or changes its direction of motion. Now, if that sounds like the first law of motion that Isaac Newton described, you're right. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. Plagiarism, anyone. Yeah, there's that. And it's it's not necessarily that that he put it in all the right words, but was able to, to do it in such a way that then the people that he influenced took it and ran with it. Which there's something to be said for that. Yeah. He also was a pioneer for the scientific method, uh, which we think about being presented by Galileo. So Galileo Galilei was an Italian physicist, if you're not aware, <laughs> in the, the mid 1500s, and is presented as the father of the scientific method of, of having a hypothesis, doing experiments based on that hypothesis, and making sure that the experiments are consistent, repeatable, and support the hypothesis based on, you know, confirmable procedures or mathematical evidence. But Al-Haytham was doing this five centuries beforehand. They're just using what he kind of set up and running with it. Yeah. 
So again, we don't see this coming up as somebody we've studied in school. And like, I was talking to my husband about this while doing research for this. And I'm like, it's one of those things where I, I, I get it. When kids are young, they don't have the brain space to be able to capture all of the details in a thing. So you give them the overview. Yeah. Got hit on the head with an apple, theorized gravity. That's a fun story. That's something you can remember. That's something that's that's a, a tangible enough thing. You can imagine sitting under a tree and getting hit on the head with an apple. But the problem, especially in my experience in, in Western, especially in, in the U.S. school system, is that we don't go back and rewrite those with the actual facts. Well, just because how hard would it be to tell us a story about Ibn al-Haytham? How hard would it be to then incorporate a story of the actual person who set this up? At the end of the day, it all comes down to marketing. Right. It does. And skin color. And yes, I went there. Oh, oh no, we're going to go there again in a minute. <laughs> Just, just, just hold on. You're getting ahead of me. So we're going to go back to the scientific method for, for just a minute again. Okay. Ibn al-Haytham developed rigorous experimental methods to control scientific te- testing in order to verify hypotheses and substantiate inductive conjectures. And in that way, if that sounds familiar, it's because that's pretty much the modern scientific method with some, some tweaks. It consisted of a repeating cycle observation, hypothesis, experimentation, and the need for independent verifications. Yeah, he wasn't basing this on abstract theories, but on experimental evidence. It was systematic and repeatable, and repeatable not just by him, but by others. I mean, that's essentially the foundation for the scientific method. It's textbook scientific method. What's fun is when you look at Galileo uh, and the two medieval European scholars who were his main predecessors were Robert Grostes and Roger Bacon, who I've already mentioned. (laughs) Gross test was Roger Bacon's teacher and a man whose main field of scientific work was in optics and was heavily influenced by Alhaitha. Ah. We look at this and it kind of comes full circle. So yeah, Galileo indirectly got this basis and this concept from Alhaitha. And I love this quote. He said this, the seeker after truth is not one who studies the writings of the ancients and puts his trust in them, but rather the one who suspects his faith in them and questions what he gathers from them. Thus, the duty of the man who investigates the writings of scientists, if learning truth is his goal, is to make himself an enemy of all that he reads, and, applying his mind to the core and margins of its context, attack it from every side. That's it. It, It's it's not how we normally speak today, but if you break that down, I mean, yeah, you, you study the writings of the ancients, and then you question it, and then you investigate it more, and then you attack it, and then see what happens. Exactly. To kind of summarize and, and, and talk a little bit about, about this, because I, I think it is super important, and I fell down a rabbit hole of, of looking at the Dark Ages, and yeah, so we're, we're gonna, this may not be our full episode on the Dark Ages, but we're gonna talk about it anyway. Yeah. Ibn al-Haytham was only one of dozens of Middle Eastern individuals who were conveniently forgotten or unmentioned in works of later individuals, even if the works were translated and used as references. One scholar in the 13th century basically copied Al-Haytham's book of optics and had it published. When he was found out, he was mocked and called Al-Hazan's ape, um, which I think was hysterical because they're like, you just copy, you didn't, there's not even anything new in here. It's not like you like took his stuff and then like, referenced it 
but like referenced it in depth and then expounded on it. No, you just copied it. You're an idiot. So I appreciate that he got called out for that. But Alhaitham's theories gave Copernicus, Bacon, Galileo the basis to understand the relationship of Earth with the stars. He wrote about the attraction of masses 600 years before Galileo and Newton began writing about gravity. In many cases, it was the Islamic influence that set in motion the factors leading to the emergence of modern science. And it's sad that we don't study these things today. But I, I, I came across an article that helped me kind of understand a little bit about why and a little bit more of the context from from the time. And I've tried to summarize it and add some of my thoughts as I as I went along. So people, and, and I'm using this term somewhat loosely as it really refers to a small number of specific scholars with specific intent in Europe later on couldn't stomach the idea of having borrowed or learned these things from outside their own borders. And more specifically, not from the Arabian and Muslim people who they had just fought in the Crusades. Yeah. These interactions not only led to the the widespread, like like you were talking about, the, the widespread translations uh, and, and actual movement of these texts and, and great periods of trade, they also left with, with, with several new Arabic words that are still in use today, like bazaar or tariff, arsenal, algorithm, algebra, all of which have been incorporated into our language. Bazaar may be slightly less so on a, like a regular basis, but you know we still use tariff, algebra, algorithm all the time. There's a perception that because of the heavy influence of Middle Eastern philosophy and science in the 13th through 15th centuries, that there needed to be a swing away from it, lest they be dominated by it, which immediately led to the Greco-Roman revival of the Renaissance to help drive away that influence of Islam on European thought and therefore was a means to minimize the impact of Islamic science and philosophy that gave most of Europe a different, more expanded view of the concept of the world. And not even in a religious context, but just from a straightforward scientific concept. And that's really what it boils down to is what what we're really trying to do with this entire podcast is to talk about these magnificent minds and relatively unknown individuals and why their impact is important. Because the Dark Ages weren't the Dark Ages. The dude who called it the Dark Ages, first of all, he was referring to a thousand years, basically from about the time that the Bible was more or less finished in what, like four or 500 to like 1300. It was a whole thousand years. I'm like, this is the Dark Ages. You're still talking about Constantine. You're still talking about the, the Islamic Golden Age. There's so much happening that just because... Western Europe was in a slump and was not putting forward as much new stuff as they had before or after. It doesn't mean that it was bad or miserable or, or whatever. It just means the influence was coming from elsewhere. So yeah, that's my soapbox for today. I love it because I totally agree. It's so easy to write out of history what makes you feel uncomfortable. I see that context of we, we just fought these Saracens and, and they're influencing everything and soon the whole world would be Muslim. And it's like, no, that's not how this works. <laughs> I totally agree with you that, you know, we, we could just write a different story and have Al-Haytham hit by an apple on the head. I don't know. It's not as, as flowery of a story if we talk about it in a different way. And, and I get that for younger children in particular, you know, we need to simplify it. But simplifying it doesn't mean that we need to attribute things to someone else. Why wouldn't we just give credit to the appropriate people? Right. Or at least when we do that, attribute the right people first. And even if we have to tell a simplified version of it earlier on, just so that they get the concept, we expand on it later instead of just leaving it there. Yeah. 
I don't know. It, it's things like, uh, you know, and, and we're coming up on Thanksgiving here in the States. And so it's like, we, we always think about, oh, you know, the first Thanksgiving was great. And yeah, they were, they were low on food, but they, they all banded together. And it's like, no, that's not remotely what it was like, but sure, go ahead. One day we'll learn better. But until then, we will keep teaching generations of school children that Isaac Newton and Galileo are, are the main men in these discoveries. They were great men. They, they came up with new things. They phrased things well. They presented them in ways that the public could understand. But they also stood on the shoulders of great men. And that's what we forget. Because Alhatham is certainly not the only one who influenced them. No, he is one of many. And it's not just out of the Middle East. It's also out of Asia. It's out of Africa. There's a lot of the world that we're missing. And were these men perfect? No, they were flawed. We don't know a lot about his personal life, but I can assure you he was probably flawed. And yet we have entirely cut out his contributions. Unless you are in the know or or in that field, you, you basically have no idea who he was. And that's unfortunate. Because we are missing so much. But hopefully in the upcoming episodes, we will open your eyes and make you question and think and look into... That's kind of what we're here for and what we're trying to do is is not just bring you like fun anecdotes or a woman who put rabbits where rabbits don't belong, but also to talk about some perhaps like today, a, a little bit of a difficult topic because it is something that I feel strongly about and, and that has gotten pushed aside over the centuries. Why? You know, I, I think it's it, it, quite frankly, it's bullshit. Uh, FYI, I'm still going to give this podcast a clean rating. So if you've just heard that word and are upset about the clean rating write to us separately. Please don't review us. <laughs> but I'm leaving that in there because it's true. That's that's a sorry not sorry moment. I it, it is what it is. Like I I feel strongly in it, but at least hopefully we can do better. And that's the that's that's where I want to leave that today. Learn, do better. Yes. When you know better, do better. Otherwise, what's the point of learning anything? That was fascinating, and now I want to go back and reread some stuff. So you may see a little mini episode on our Patreon. We'd love if you would consider sharing our podcast with a friend as we work to get more listeners every two weeks. And if you don't have anyone in particular in mind, uh, at least go on to wherever you have gotten our podcast and give it a thumbs up. Leave a comment if you're so inclined. Especially if it's nice. Yeah. Yeah, especially if it's nice, leave a comment and, and recommend a topic that you think we might be able to mispronounce. <laughs> yeah, I mean, here's the thing, though. We're willing to tackle things that we could mispronounce or we could inadvertently misrepresent because we think it's so important to talk about things, even if to the point where we're willing to put ourselves on the line to be embarrassed or to have to relook at how we view something. Stay tuned for our posts on social media hinting what we might be covering in two weeks because that's as good as it's going to get this time. I have to debate what I'm going to cover. But on that note, go like us on social media, spread the love, and until then, there are more episodes Yes, to go check out if you have not listened to those already, if you're new to the podcast. Yes, forgive our audio. We're still working it out. I know zero about editing. We're getting there. It's getting better every week. One day we'll be pros at this.